Hello, this is Stephen, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Now, not far from here, across Charing Cross Road, there's a little street cowering now under gleaming towers and big TV screens. And even after its redevelopment, you might still see the odd musician scurrying in and out of a doorway with an instrument case, or a gaggle of young hopefuls dreaming of stardom, gazing through the windows of the Romanian music shops. But its time is passing, it's becoming a little corner of lost culture. So, of course, one of the things that we like to celebrate here. And come and join us, celebrate more, get our bulletin, find out about all the other stories and details of upcoming events at bureauoflostculture.com. In March, we've got a whole series of things around the beat poet Allen Ginsberg's life and times in London at the Horse Hospital. If you haven't been there, by the way, that is the last bastion of counterculture in the centre of the city. More on that next time. In the meantime, would you do me a favour? If you've enjoyed these stories, leave a review for us wherever you can, if you can. Or, and, tell a friend so that some of this culture will not remain lost. My thanks to you and to my correspondents this week, Anna, Mary, Tony and Ronnie. Now, let's go for a stroll. Britain's own Tin Pan Alley, Denmark Street, was at one time alive with the sound of hammered pianos, sung melodies and choruses, its songwriters knocking out tunes on the fly and rushing out onto the street to sell them to pay for the next round of drinks. The street's importance was such that the melody maker and New Musical Express, NME, for younger listeners, they were music papers, were both started here. And in its heyday in the 60s, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks all came here, as did Donovan, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, Elton John, Jimi Hendrix, Jeff Beck. A very popular rendezvous for all the above uh, and any other visitors to the street was La Gioconda, a cafe or bar where David Bowie was practically said to live. In later years, when Malcolm McLaren was looking for a rehearsal space for the Sex Pistols, he was delighted to find a room in Denmark Street, installing his upstarts in the heart of the traditional music industry, like Greek soldiers inside the Trojan horse. Journalist Pete Watts has come back to the Bureau to tell us about this lost street of dreams, and at least one nightmare, and the astonishing role it's played in both music and London's history. His book on Denmark Street, published by Paradise Road, is chock full of wonderful and often surprising tales of culture, counterculture, pop culture, youth culture, London legends and legacies, melodies, memories, and of course, music. Hello, Pete. Hi, how are you? Good. Yeah, well, you were an early guest, actually, talking about the flamingo. But yeah, I remember talking about flamingo and the marquee. Anyway, welcome back. The reason that you're back is you've published this, finally, this yes. uh, long-awaited tome on Denmark Street, London's Street of Sound, the Street of Dreams, actually, for, for, for many musicians. And we're going to talk about Denmark Street. Um, but first of all, let's just remind ourselves, who is Pete Watts? I am a journalist and I am an author. I've been uh, writing about music uh, for the last sort of 20 years for Uncut and Time Out. But I also write about London more generally and architecture. Um, place. Uh, my last book was about Battersea Power Station, and this one is sort of combining two of my passions, which is London and music. Yeah, you've also written about politics, cinema, drugs, beer, history, 
comedy football hippies archaeology. Oh, yeah. Oh, I could add Poetry. That. I didn't know what you did as a poetry I can add that list. I Food. Can, uh, art. Freemasons. I tunnels. Add. Tunnels. <laughs> I was in a tunnel just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Right. Reigniting my old love of tunnels. London Tunnel. A London Tunnel under Imperial College. Right. Yeah. I didn't know there was one there. There is a massive network of right. tunnels that connect every spot on the campus underneath where all the utilities go. Right. And they're um, they're big enough for, for a human body to... Uh, to go from one end of the campus to the other. Talking about tunnels, the you know that network of tunnels underneath Hoban Kingsway, mm-hmm. the trams. Yeah, yeah, it was part of the tram thing, but also there was like a there's like deep level oh, yeah. communication yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, now yeah. that's been bought by Finally. a private company who's going to open it up as a venue slash experience. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I went down there. Oh God, fifteen years ago, mm. periodically is put on the market, mm. and I went down there about fifteen years ago. It's an amazing space. It's like sort of seventies, sort of Doctor Who style. Yeah, Cold War. It's sort really of amazing. Yeah. We were hoping to use it as a venue for a while, but at that yeah. time it was impossible because of yeah. fire escapes and no loons and all that sort of stuff. It was so I don't know how they managed it, but that's coming. London Tunnel Experience. Or wow, something. that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. People love that stuff. Listen, we've already uh, gone below the surface. <laughs> Very good. Let's stick up. Uh, so we're actually in Soho, just around the corner not very far from Denmark Street and uh, Denmark Street so there's no other street in London that can pack as much history into such a small area you said uh, there are numerous significant buildings in London the British Library or the Abbey Road but there's nowhere quite like Denmark Street connecting musicians such as the Beatles the Stones Lionel Bart Joe Meek Gracie Fields the Kinks the Sex Pistols Pink Floyd Banana Rama Elton John Jimi Hendrix Jimmy Page David Bowie Jeff Buckley goes on and on and on doesn't it, it so, really does. so for anybody who's not London, and anybody who's not UK in particular, it has been described as London's Timpan Alley. Yes. Um, let's start there. First of all, what is the original Timpan Alley, and why would we call this little street in central London the British equivalent? So the original Timpan Alley was in New York, um, and it was where all the songwriters were based, people like Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, and it was where songs were, were written and, and published. Some and of the greatest songs ever written, in fact. Definitely, absolutely, absolutely. In London, there was no real equivalent to that until a man called Lawrence Wright, who was a publisher um, from the Midlands, came down and opened his office um, in 1911 on Denmark Street. And and do we know why he picked Denmark Street in particular? Well, he would have picked Denmark Street probably for two reasons. So Denmark Street, for those who don't know it, is it's it's actually just outside Soho. It's in St Giles, south of Oxford Street at, um, and Tottenham Court Road, and it connects Covent Garden with Charing Cross Road, which at the time was where all the books publishers were based. All the bookshops like Foils still are, and there still are today a lot of bookshops along there. Right, so it's a natural place for a publisher to gravitate towards. Yes. It has to be said, because you mentioned St Giles then, and we like to sneak a bit of history in, because mm. actually, of course, this St Giles was, in previous times, not that previous no. to 911 one of the worst parts of london it wasn't was, it the famous as, rookeries and it was as rough as they come it was a it was a rookery very famous slum um some great descriptions of it by people like um, henry mayhew that had sort of been eroded by uh gentrification which mm. is in those days took the form of literally just putting a massive great road through the middle of it and flattening all the houses which is what they did when they built charing cross road in new oxford street but it still always had that little undercurrent of seediness, which is something I've always liked about Denmark Street. The church seedy. is still there, isn't it, as well, St. Giles? The church is still there, which yeah. used to be a sort of leper colony for a while. And it was also the um, stopping-off place when people were being going to be executed at Tyburn. They'd take them from Newgate in the east, 
drag them on a cart quite often while they were getting abused by the crowds. But they'd get the stop at that church and they would get a drink in the Angel Pub, right? I think so. And, I think uh, that was their last, their last drink before, yeah. the, before, before the, the noose. And did you know that that's where the phrase um, falling off the wagon comes from? Oh, so when we talk about that, when you stop drinking, or is it when you started drinking? I can't remember what it was. <laughs> something to do with getting off the wagon and yeah. I mean, getting pissed before you got killed. Yeah. So anyway. No, it definitely has that mm. vibe to it. And um, Peter Ackroyd, in his book, London Biography, he writes about how there were, there were sort of ballads, 17th and 18th century, 16th. There were like topical songs and they were, they, were, they were lyrics based on hymns and they were kind of printed and, and put up in windows. And a lot of them were published in Seven Dials and, seven, and, and sort of St Giles. So that kind of gives that kind of notion that there's music in the air here. Yeah. Um, I mean, the reason publishing is is called publishing in musical terms is because in those days there was no recorded music or very little recorded music so people um, knew songs simply through playing them on piano for which they needed sheet music so if you had a popular song um, and it was you know it was a hit in the music hall people would then go home or go you know go out and try and buy the uh, the sheet music um, and that's how the publishers made their money and just out of interest I mean when I signed my publishing deal the music publishing deals it's, yeah. it still includes Sheet music, yeah. Like they have the right to print your stuff on sheet music. I'd love to, love to get see that. But yeah, um, but it's still, it's still included. I think along with sort of wax recordings that's and stuff really like that. That's really interesting, isn't it? That's window. really interesting. Um, yeah, because that, that's a real hangover, and the publishers' mm. role changed massively, as as we might talk about. Mm. Of course, printed, you know, there's often quite beautiful, uh, you know, sheets, printed sheet music, you know, songs with lovely extravagant covers and stuff. They really, like that. they really were, and I think that's what you would get. Um, along Denmark Street is you'd have these window displays and they would mm. look, look like a bookshop, you know, that are mm. beautiful displays of, of sheet music for people to buy. And also the idea was a songwriter who would, you know, he'd be a professional songwriter. Often you'd get, um, you know, someone doing composing the music and someone adding the lyrics in that traditional sense. And then they would go along Denmark Street and they would play them for the different publishers and try and get a deal. So Lawrence Wright was the first to go there and he'd had this success, hadn't he? The reason that he'd sort of like come down from the north was is that he'd made a lot of money from one particular song. Yes. So Lawrence Wright, who also wrote under the name um, Horatio Nichols, he had acquired the rights to a song. He hadn't written it, but he had acquired the rights to a song called um, Don't Go Down in the Mind, Dad. And a couple of years, I think, after he got that, there was a mining disaster in Whitehaven in Cumbria um, where sort of 130 people died, uh, men and boys. That sheet music became a you know, huge seller. Lawrence Fry gave half the money to charity and with the rest of it, he moved to Denmark Street. And then presumably started to buy more songs. Yeah, he bought a lot of songs from America especially because that was where the best songs were being written. Sometimes they'd change the words to make them mm. more suitable for an English audience. Something like Teddy Bear's Picnic was originally an American melody that then they wrote English lyrics for. But he also wrote his own songs. He wrote um, um, uh, Among My Souvenirs, which is probably his most famous song. And he was an excellent self-publicist. Um, he would do incredibly ridiculous stunts to kind of promote his songs. Um, he had a network of pluggers who would go to the music halls to get the most popular band leaders and, and musicians to perform them, um, which was your basic your basic form of advertising and often involved a sort of little bung or a bribe. Um, and he started Melody Maker. The very first issue of Melody Maker did have a big picture of Horatio Nichols on the front, and it was essentially a self, another self-promotion organ. And again, for anybody younger, Melody Maker um, was a very, very long-running yeah. 
music paper. I mean, my association with it was the was indie bands, but, in, yeah. but actually, did you write for Melody Maker? I never wrote for right. Melody Maker, no. Because Melody Maker and Enemy wasn't there, were the two yeah. kind of music rags, and Enemy's still going in a sort of weird form, but Melody, just about. Just about. Melody Maker died. But so uh, he, and it's just quite interesting what you say then about him buying songs. And of course, that's the theme all the way through uh, music publishing, still is, of course, when even these days we hear about like Bob Dylan selling his catalogue, mm. right? Uh, hundreds of millions rather yeah. than them. Um, but um, there was just huge amounts of songs being made, and the songwriters, I would get 15 quid for this and then uh, if it was a huge hit obviously you'd be kicking yourself but that's what I found very interesting is 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 that, that there's a couple of cases where, where where two people have have collaborated on a song and one of them has um decided to sort of retain his royalties and another one has taken the quick buck and you know one of them has ended up being immensely wealthy because they've hung on to a, a, a bestseller and another one has just had 50 quid or the right. or whatever the equivalent was in 1920 mm. and there are some really kind of some of them are quite tragic stories and some of them are quite you know the guy called Jimmy Kennedy who is an incredibly successful songwriter he wrote South of the Border which is probably one of the best songs to have come out of the British Tin Pan Alley um, and he made a he made a fortune for from it I think he was earning something like you know sort of £12,000 a year just on that alone in the sort of before the war whereas his his co-writer was getting nothing and of course the sort of distribution network then would have been that the publishers Lawrence Wright or his competitors or you know, the other people who started to do it on Denmark Street, they would bung like a band leader to play their new song. Yeah. They'd play it in the music halls. People would be sort of, that's great. And then they would want to buy the sheet music to play at home on the piano. Yeah. That's how it worked, right? That's exactly okay. how it worked. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. That, that's what the pluggers did. The pluggers mm. were almost as important as the publishers. You had this kind of, um, you had to say, the network. And, and that's the other important fact for the location of it uh, where it was sort of in between Soho and Covent Garden you've got all the major theatres and and, right. and and venues in, in the West End all within walking distance and that's obviously really really important in those days because you know a lot of this is done word of mouth in meetings you know people need to be able to actually visit each other quickly and conveniently then so Lawrence Wright has kick-started it in mm. Denmark Street and then from what you're saying is that other people then started to open up shop too as this is always what happens yeah. you open a coffee shop somebody opens one next door right or yeah you know so it, it, that's that's how it evolved into this music publisher street for a while you had all sorts of different publishers moving in there over the time I mean you know one of the biggest ones was Noel Gay who um, wrote Lambeth Walk he did the sort of me, me and my girl musical and he um, he was a friend and a protege I think of Lawrence Wright who sort of told him he should stick as a songwriter and not go into publishing but he did branch into publishing and he moved on to um, Denmark Street his company that he started was there really up until very very recently up until the sort of recent um, uh, redevelopment um, and there were loads of others. It starts to change a bit as well doesn't it because the publishers are there and of course that brings in other people doesn't it it brings mm. in the the say as we move into the 30s and 40s and 50s or post-war and stuff so what happened how did it get out of the sort of next uh, the next I iteration of Denmark Street come up you had the um, publishers on the ground floors and often often above if they were big enough and other little offices around there I mean they're, they're great little little buildings three and four storey couple of rooms on each one you know a lot of them were sort of one-man offices who might be doing, you know, you know, band leaders or whatever, or pluggers, or would have an office, publicists, various things. But the really big change, I think, happened um, after the war with the sort of arrival of um, recording studios, demo studios. Suddenly, um, you know, instead of playing a song on a piano, you would you would cut it, cut it to acetate. But very quickly, you had three or four um, studios, sort of in the fifties. On the street, you had Regent Sound was the most famous, but you had Central Sound, and you had um, and you, you had Southern as well. 
um, and some of the publishers had their own studios. That was the big change because you know then you didn't really need the plugger anymore. You had the disc. Right. So this is paralleling, I suppose, the development of disc as the medium which people were yes. consuming music. So it's gone moved out of it's probably still going on, but it's moved out of sheet music. Yeah. Now everybody's got a record player yeah. or a gramophone player. And so uh, if you've got the ability rather than going me going into a room with you and you're sitting at the piano and I'm singing and we're writing a song together or demoing it for a publisher, mm. it's like, hmm, well let's have a see what that's gonna sound like when it's been recorded, right? Yeah, completely. Yeah. And and the really significant thing that happened alongside this was the foundation of the NME, which mm. was also founded on Denmark Street um, at number five, and one of their one of their first innovations, and possibly the single most important thing to come out of Denmark Street, was the um, advent of the um, of the chart, which was based on on record sales. Charts, you know, yeah. the, an important part of many people's yeah. life uh, for many many years, and probably still is, is in some ways, isn't it? Is uh, that started on Denmark? It was Street. compiled on Denmark Street. Someone would have sat there at number five. They'd have called round the select. I don't know how many it was at first. Um, you know, shops and said, "What have you sold?" Um, and that was also significant because people who were buying, it was a different audience. So pre-war, let's say, at the simplest level, music was really aimed almost at housewives and children. And dancing. Dancing, yeah, this is true. Dancing, housewives, children. After that, it became it became a little bit livelier. It became a bit more for teenagers. They were the ones who were buying the record. Rock and roll comes in. Yeah, American skiffle. Import, skiffle right? um, and everything sort of really shifted then, I think, on Denmark Street. And one of one of the um, there's not many books about Denmark Street, but one of them that came out um, came out in 1964. But it was by a, a sort of plugger who'd worked on Denmark Street through the 30s and 40s. And it, he, he, he can sense the changes that are coming. And, and almost every other paragraph is like a sort of lament what rock and roll has unleashed on the uh, civilised uh, patrons of uh, Denmark Street. We were looking yesterday at the uh, that image of um, Bill Haley, yeah, and uh, with Crocodile Rock, obviously yes. it was a massive hit around the yes. world. And stuff. Comments are there, holding crocodiles. I know, that's a classic Denmark Street kind of um, publicity <sighs> ruse. And that's something that Horatio Nichols, uh, Lawrence Wright, instigated. Right. He had a song called um, I've Never Seen a Straight banana and then gave people offered people a prize if they could bring him a straight banana and eddie rogers who i mentioned who wrote the uh, who's a plugger who wrote the other tim pan alley book um he had a song which i think was sung by arthur Askey's called i've never seen a piggy with a straight tail or something like that and again he had a competition for farmers can you produce a pig with a straight tail? and apparently loads of them did so he then had to declare the competition he said there were too many pigs and they were all scared and it had straightened their tails and he declared the competition null and void Oh, fear straightens a pig's tail. What a <laughs> exactly. That's a great Which fact. Which is actually for a song, yeah, maybe. Yeah, perfect, yeah. <laughs> so it moved out of this kind of jokey thing, isn't it? You mentioned South of the Border by Gene Autry, and then, mm. and then you know, you, this other song, What a Crazy World We're Living In, Joe Brown. He's still around, of course. Yeah, yeah. he is still around. Um, I, I, When I did the book, I wanted to kind of, you know, um, rather than tell every single story that you could about Denmark Street, I wanted to pick on certain characters or buildings that sort of charted the way the music business had changed. And one of them I felt was Alan Klein, who wrote this song for Denmark Street. He wanted to write a British song. And he wrote this song. Joe Brown eventually agreed to uh, to perform it. But again, in a classic sort of Denmark Street style, he was told that Joe Brown would only record it if he could get his name on the credits, which apparently wasn't true at all. And it meant that Alan Klein lost a bit of his royalties there. But then this song was, was spun off into an entire film, which is fantastic. So that's another interesting thing which Beatles did change this in a way, as did Dylan, I suppose. But this is also a time when 
it, there's a definite split between the songwriters mm. and the performers, yes. right? So yeah. performers, Presley, Jill Brown, you know, they weren't generally writers, no. were they? They, no, no, they no. were performers, and yeah. it was, that was the way it was understood to be. Absolutely. Right? So you had Tommy Steele, you had, you had, you had people like Lionel Bart, right, mm. write, writing songs for them, um, but they wouldn't perform them, and, and mm. vice versa. And yeah, that absolutely changed with um, with the with the Beatles. What's interesting about them is that their first signal was single was going to be um, a Mitch Murray song, um, who was a sort of old fashioned professional songwriter who went right. down Denmark Street. He recorded his demo on Denmark Street. He gave it to um, to George Martin. Uh, Martin wanted the Beatles to record it. The Beatles hated it, mm. so you know refused to play it properly. Eventually, they you know they were allowed to do their own songs. So the Beatles very nearly got kind of kind of co-opted into that old system because no one knew differently. But their sort of influence on the way that music publishing and performance was kind of, you can't underestimate it because Dylan no. was also doing the same thing, wasn't it? Because like in, in America, you've got Dylan and something like, yeah, he's playing these traditional songs, yeah. but he's also writing these songs, right? Yeah. It's like he wants to be both. And this is the sort of birth of the singer-songwriter, isn't it? Or the band that write their it, own material. It is. It's interesting. that I, I don't think that Dylan was an influence on the early Beatles and what they were doing. They were just doing what, what they right. wanted to do. Right, yeah. So their publishing company, Northern Songs, was actually... Street. Yeah, so 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 Dick James, who um, had been a singer and had um, his famous song was a Robin Hood theme. He'd then gone into publishing. Um, he'd recorded um, Robin Hood with uh, George Martin, so they were friends. First Beatles singles were were published and 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 plugged therefore by EMI. Brian Epstein didn't think they'd done a very good job. So he said to George Martin, who do you know? George Martin said, I've got a mate, Dick James. The Beatles went along and they arranged a deal. And, and Dick James was kind of, you know, he was old fashioned, but he was savvy enough to recognise that the Beatles were an entirely new commodity. They were writing and performing their own material. You know, they had personality and they were writing songs for other people. That's another significant thing that the Beatles right. did in those early days. They were actually songwriters for other people. And so he came up with a deal which at the time was groundbreaking, which allowed them to have, a, you know, half their own publishing company. In later years, it was seen as an absolute rip-off. But I think at the time, it was genuinely um, really innovative. The thing is then Dick James eventually sold his half without telling the Beatles that giving them a chance to buy it, which is how they lost control of their own catalogue. And it went all the way around the world and Michael Jackson ended up owning... Yeah, who, and, he, and he also ended up owning the catalogue for Dick James as well. So um, uh, things are changing on, on Denmark Street. And mm. also, the, so, you know, rock and roll's come in, the Beatles have come in, mm. and also things are changing in London, aren't they? So it's like the yes. early, early 60s are coming and, you know, it's a different era, isn't it? And suddenly you're getting all these rock and roll bands who are taking the Beatles' lead. They want to not only be the, the performers, but they want to write their own stuff. Yeah. Of course, the Stones make their first album. Tell us about that on yeah. Denmark Street, right? So again, the Stones were the other sort of big innovators, obviously, in, in that era, but particularly on Denmark Street. And it is interesting the way, you know, these were guys who were operating outside the, the, the established system, but within as well, or even on that same street mm. of the established system. So Andrew Lou Goldham, he was a manager, and he was the same age as him, a bit younger even, I think, wasn't he, Andrew Lou Goldham? Um, he had a sort of romantic association with Denmark Street. He talks about how he would go there as a kid and look at the windows and, like, want to be a star. And he'd actually tried to sell his own first song on Denmark Street. It was called Boomerang Rock, um, a kind of skiffle number, and it was rejected roundly. <laughs> um, and then when he came back... 
Um, there's two significant things he did. First of all, one of the first Stones photo shoots was on Denmark. So it's an amazing photo of the Stones outside the Tin Pan Alley Club. And they, you, you, you get, you know, it's, it's, it's like one of those first colour pictures of the 60s. It's in beautiful colour. There's red and yellow behind them. They look extraordinary. They look, you know, they look like aliens, really. It must have, it must have been alarming for sort of Arthur Askey types. <laughs> and the other thing that he did is he put them in the studio. He put them in a demo studio, Regent Sound, because it was kind of um, comfortable, I think. It was comfortable. Mm, mm. They could make mistakes. Stakes. It was cheap. Um, there was a very good engineer there called Bill Farley, and they and they made their first album. Listen to that track that you sent me. I think actually, in terms of the sound of it, it's sound, I thought it sounded great. It's amazing what they could have, what they could do, wasn't it? I mean, um, you know, I, th- I think that you know they, everything leaks into each other, mm. but it gives mm. it personality. Mm. It really does. It's just the energy and vibe sort of rips through, doesn't yeah. it? You know, you can still feel it. Actually, yeah, and songs. I think that's because they were comfortable in, in mm. what they were doing, and they were there was there's a couple of times where um, you know they had to interrupt the sessions, so they had to run out. And buy the sh- and, you know, they could go and buy the sheet music for the because f- they were mainly doing covers. In fact, it was all covers, I think, wasn't it? And I think they went in and visited um, Donovan, who was recording his first album just along the street at around the same time in another demo studio. And he obviously was a real sort of influence by the Dylan song, a singer songwriter. Yeah, right. Yeah. You mentioned then Lou Goldham's relationship with Denmark Street, and of course with them with the Stones, and him. You know, for him, this was the street of dreams. You know, you walk down and imagine yourself as one of the writers and you know and having mm. success with all that sort of stuff well another person of course who did that who had more personal success than um uh, Lou Goldham was David Bowie wasn't it yeah he, he was intimately involved yeah. with Demonstrate, but also with Soho wasn't it I mean there's a whole story of the evolution of Bowie from David Jones which a lot of it is to do with this area where we are now yeah. on Denmark Street yeah right? no absolutely you so many um Bowie landmarks well, what's fascinating is it's is you know this is his really difficult period Mm. you know he wasn't a success but he was going at it he was really going for it formed numerous bands um, through that period he recorded demos at various studios he recruited one of his bands the lower third in the Giaconda which was the kind of uh, kind of house cafe for all the musicians Um, who were recording at the demo studio? There were times when you know he'd go on, he'd, he'd go off after a gig out of town, and they'd park up outside the Giaconda in their converted ambulance and stay there overnight. You know, have tea in the morning, brought out to them by the owner of the cafe. And the venue, the old venue on Denmark Street, which used to be the Twelve Bar, is reopened as the Lower Third, paying sort of homage to um, to mm. Bowie's time on that street. There's a lot of other stuff going on in Soho too, like the advertising industry as well, which you're all you think he worked for an advertising. Yeah, he did, didn't he? he? One of his first jobs was mm. and and. And, and he fir- he met Mark Boland for the first time on Denmark Street when they were both um, they were both kind of struggling to get any work. So they mm. their manager Leslie Conn asked them to come in and uh, and paint their office. And that's when they that's when Bowie and Boland met for the first time. By the way, uh, listen if you don't know Denmark Street, it's very short as well, it is, isn't it's it? Really so it's, short. It's, yeah. it's squeeze all this stuff in. Yeah, there's lots of other bees after after that. I mean, I just want to go back to Lionel Bart. I'm a major fan of Lionel Bart. Mm. I mean, you know, the, because of all the songs that he wrote for for Oliver and mm. musicals and stuff. And so, what was his role on? on on Denmark Street. So, Lionel Bart was another sort of figure who kind of, con- he was a bit like Alan Klein, he kind mm. of connects the, the two eras of um, of sort of pre-Beatles and then and then post-Beatles or rock and roll and also connects Soho and Denmark Street because he was, you know, he, he was involved in the Two Eyes, he designed the um, the, the, sort of the backdrop at the Two Eyes um, on Old Compton Street which was the great rock and roll skiffle venue, he wrote songs for Tommy Steele, published on Denmark Street that was mm. where his publisher was, he spent a lot of time on Denmark Street in various offices, and then he obviously wrote Oliver, but then it all went a bit. It all went wrong it for him, really actually. Well, fa- him. fame, actually, because it's supposed to, we mentioned earlier, so at the same time, we've got the counterculture happening in London. Mm. You know, you've got swinging 60s. 
it's all going nuts, isn't it? With particularly the music industry, drugs, of course. Yeah. I think he became a casualty of that, didn't he? He really and, did. And of course, he he's one of the people who sold his songs. He he's, did sell his songs. Alan Klein told me that you know towards the end of the, I think in the mid seventies, Joe Littlewood, who who ran the theatre company in Stratford, put Bart and Klein together with a view mm. that they would write a musical together. Klein just said that Bart was just burnt out. You know, he yeah. was just he was a lovely guy. But he was just incapable at that point. I heard that Cameron Mackintosh, who's the sort of great theatre impresario in London still, um, who came to own Oliver, yeah. um, actually did give yes. Lionel Bart a, a sort of small percentage yeah, back. Yeah, he did. Out of, yeah. out, of, out of the sort of kindness heart, which has got to take my hat off to that. Yeah, so he, his sort of last mm. years were actually, mm. he was he was sort of able to actually live yeah. live a decent yeah, yeah. life again. Yeah, friends with it, actually, he did sort of clean up at the end. And the reason is, is that he woke up one day with something was tapping on his head his forehead and he realized that actually he was lying down in the hall of his flat in Ealing and it was the postman po pushing bills through the door and it landed on his face I think that was his nadia that was the moment yeah. when, he, when, when he decided to get clean and, and sort himself out you know just one story uh, connects with Denmark Street many others uh, Pete so let's go on so you know you've got the Stones you've got the Kinks yeah, Hendrix Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin. Tell us some about some of those stories. Kinks was signed to um, um, a publishing company, Denmark Publishing, I think, and they um, they signed an unwise deal. And uh, Ray Davis essentially actually wrote a song called Denmark Street on Lola, and it's a fantastic song actually about being ripped off, basically, <laughs> and his bitterness about about that old fashioned music industry, mm. which I think you know a lot of the kind of the new rock and rollers did sign really unwise deals mm. with the old school publishers, even canny ones like Andrew Lou Goldham. He signed a deal with an old school publisher for the Stones. He knew he what he was doing, and he secured the UK rights, but he didn't secure the international rights. And he cost him a pretty penny. I mean, you know, Lou Golden wasn't averse to pulling his own. He got his own back on the verth, didn't he, late years later? Well, that's true. And he was always putting himself on the B-sides of things <laughs> just so he could take in a bit of money. The whole verve thing, which was a bit of sweet symphony because of the sample. Yeah. And the sample wasn't from the Stones. It was one of those such and such a body plays the songs of the Rolling Stones in an orchestral oh, form. Right, right. That yeah, 70s yeah, yeah. thing where they get yeah. a kind of library type person yeah, yeah. did a kind of orchestral instrumental right. takes on Rolling Stone songs and they sampled that, the string section right. from that. So that was a but KPM because the story. publishing belonged to the Stones, mm. they ended up having to give all the royalties mm. to the Stones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's br doubly brutal. Well, somebody told me, and I don't know this is true, that actually Jagger and Richards did end up giving something back to Richard. I wouldn't but, be surprised if they did on the yeah. quiet. Because, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's a pretty, bit rich as well, isn't it? I mean, you know, they ripped awful. off... So it rips many. off loads of people exactly. themselves and probably paid off loads yeah. of people, right? Like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, exactly. Paid off loads of black yeah. blues musicians. It's funny watch Zeppelin's credits changing <laughs> over the years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've managed to get away with Stairway to Heaven, haven't they? Yeah, it's such an interesting sort of concept, though. Elvis Costello, wasn't he? he was recently, someone recently said that there was, I think it might have been Olivia Rodrigo, who basically pinched very early Elvis Costello songs. And he said, yeah, but I'd nicked it off Bob Dylan, I'd just right. played subtraining holistic blues badly and faster um, in the first place. Yeah, Ed Sheeran, yeah. you know, that court case recently. And he was quite yeah, rightly, yeah. he was found in his favour, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. that These are chords, you yeah. know, it's like they're in a billion songs. You, yeah, know, you yeah. can't copyright a chord sequence. No, no, no. Um, but uh, the whole thing around music publishing and writing is, is complicated, isn't it? Of course, all these stories like the person who did the um, the sax line on, on, on Baker Street. Yeah. I mean, Baker Street's a great song. 
Yeah. Full stop. But yeah. of course, without the sax line, yeah. it's just a good song, right? Same as the guy did the organ in White Shade of Pale. Yeah, he never won that. Yeah. Did he? But then that came from that was stolen from Bark, wasn't it? Anyway, in the first place. So. Yeah. Who else? Hendrix. Hendrix rehearsed, I think, at Regent Sound. And Page and John Paul Jones. They were session guys, and they were always in Regent Sound recording demo. Anyone who knows about Jimmy Page's session work, it's just fascinating mix of things. Um, the things he's alleged to have played on as well as the things he really did play on. This would be the place to go and star spot as well, wouldn't it? And you mentioned then the Giaconda, which was this cafe uh, yeah. where, where the sort of musos and the and, and the writers hung out. That must have been fun. Yeah, I mean, you talk to people and just say it was just a, you know, just a greasy spoon, really, just a typical sort of Italian mm. cafe. Mm. But it was the it was the place where everyone went and where deals were done and where, you know, and where, you know, bands were put together. You know, numerous bands were said to have formed and split on Denmark <laughs> Street on a Giaconda. Interviews were conducted. I think that Kenny Jones of, of Small Faces told me that he would often meet Bowie in there and that's where it's about trying to talk Bowie into joining the band, um, which kind of nearly happened. It was a meeting place and a refueling place. And also, Denmark Street was also this kind of billboard in some way where you'd advertise for, you know, drummer wanted, bass player yeah. wanted, right, or lyricist this available. I wonder when that started. I imagine that was with the advent of the of the instrument shops, right. which came a bit later, later in the on, 60s. Right, yeah. But probably the Geoconda was used in that mm. way in a sort mm. of more informal sense. Right. The publishers, because of the Beatles and because of performers writing their own material, the publishers beginning to lose less power because they no longer had to go out and find the songs and match them with the performer. Mm. That was their old job. Now the songs and the performers came together and they often went direct to a record label. Right. And the publisher's job really sort of shifted to basically collecting royalty and protecting copyright they and a lot of them got consumed by bigger labels or bigger publishing companies and the Denmark Street um, offices just sort of started to close through the course of the 60s you know this is a junction and there's no real obvious reason why Denmark Street would still be a music street other than the fact that musicians were present the demo studios were still being used and so what you had filling that gap suddenly were instrument shops because, you know, with songwriters who were, who, were, who were writing their own material, who were playing their own material, they needed they need instruments to use them. So suddenly there was an explosion in, in electric guitars as well as other instruments. Charing Crossroad was also, mm. and Shaftesbury Avenue had a few instrument shops. But Denmark Street suddenly became, suddenly took that role because there was vacant space. It became the place, didn't it? So you yeah. got the bass shop, the guitar shop, the keyboard shop, right? Yeah. And then also woodwind and all, oh, the, all the kinds thing. of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, the first one, I think, was Macari's, who, who, who moved, who, who were there for, you know, in various spots around the area for years mm. and years and years, Macari's. Um, the big one was Top Gear, who I think they were at number, oh, I think they were number five. They were a kind of bit more trendy one, and it's where like Pete Townsend's guitar tech worked, and where a lot of where a lot of um, guitarists would go. It, they were they were seen as kind of you know quite trustworthy and quite cool. One of the guys I interviewed was Sid Bishop, who was um, who played in the Deviants, McFarren's band, um, and he worked at Top Gear for years and then various other music shops. And his guitar shop, of course, famously Hanks. Well, Andy's came a bit later. Um, in between that, you had um, Cliff Cooper. I don't know if you've ever come across Cliff Cooper. He ended up owning a big chunk of the street, didn't he? Yeah, so he, he'd made his fortune. Um, he'd been in a band. He'd played with Joe Meeks and stuff. And then he'd, um, he'd made his fortune um, inventing his own amps, the Orange Amps. And then he, he opened an instrument shop on Denmark Street. And as um, as the sort of publishers move out, more space became available. He opened more and more and more publishers until he had almost the entire north, and, north section of the street. He said that, you know, because there was so much money that was being passed around during during the day, 
the best the best thing to do is rather than go out on the street and hand, hand it from shop to shop as it was needed they, they cut holes in the walls and passed it through <laughs> so you could get Excellent. so they could get they could get money from one end of the street to the other brilliant love it let's take a little sidestep as well because you mentioned uh, clubs it's a bit of london history isn't it is that denmark street was also the site of I think the second worst disaster yeah. in, in London's history, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, it was Denmark Place. It was the back of a building on mm. Denmark Street. So it was an arson. There were a couple of um, drinking establishments, kind of semi-legal drinking establishments, catering for um, mainly sort of um, people who worked in hotels. Often a lot of them were, were sort of South American. And there was a guy there called John Thompson who was drunk down and out in Soho in that area. So 79. He got thrown out. And he came back with, with some petrol put it through the letterbox and put a match to it and 30 odd people died totally unreported wasn't it partly because of you know racist overtones. yeah there was definitely the fact that they were that you know that the most of the victims were were, were not english mm. in fact and the fact that it was a slightly shady establishment mm. Mm. but there was also the fact that like, it was a really squalid crime he didn't set out to kill that many people he was i don't want to get the wrong impression here but there was no kind of glamour which you mm. often get with like major right. crime like there right. was it was just really really awful, awful mm. accident he was caught very very quickly he went mm. away for life yeah it was kind of forgotten kind of um kind of brushed brushed over really i think i didn't know about it for a very long time mm. and mm. even if when I did hear about it, you didn't know very much. There wasn't mm. very much information. Another sort of uh, side story, which is a bit more cheerful, but it's also very important, because it involves Pink Floyd, because, uh, as we know, so Hypnosis, the design company behind Floyd's very famous covers, including Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here, but also many, many other classic rock, particularly prog covers. Mm. Hypnosis, where were they based? Denmark Street, Yeah. Right? So Hypnosis were formed in the late 60s and they were originally based over in West London in one of their flats. And then they needed office space because they were getting more work because of their sort of success with, with Floyd. Because they were actually friends of they Floyd. They were friends yeah. with Floyd, yeah, from Cambridge. They got an office on, on um, Denmark Street. They got an old dance studio, um, which was almost empty apart from one grand piano, which they then flogged and used the money to, um, to, to pay for like all the equipment that they needed. And then they eventually they took the second floor of, of number six, Denmark Street. And, and this squalid office in a squalid corner of London <laughs> was where um, was some of the most famous album covers of all time for, for, for Floyd, but also for you know, Led Zeppelin. Um, Black Sabbath, 10CC, Paul McCartney, Genesis, they were, they were created. They were notoriously arrogant, though, weren't they? <laughs> they were, yes, yes, yes. Well, Storm Ferguson, who was one half, was, um, was, was very, very volatile and ended up falling out with... But he fell out with Jimmy Page, he fell out with Roger Waters, he fell out with Paul McCartney. Well, he insisted um, that Barry Gibb shave his beard off. When, he, when they moved into video, he, would, he wanted to shoot Barry Gibb video but it had to be he had to be clean shaven and very good refutes and they had this standoff for three or four days <laughs> those were the days hey when record companies had the sort of budgets to blow on videos oh. and album I mean, the amount of right? money that that the um hypnosis could spend on a mm. photo shoot you know mm. it's just outrageous they, they live like rock stars and they mm. yeah and they were on denmark street and and you do hear of like 10cc would go there into the office to look at look at designs Peter Gabriel would, and and some of um, those early Peter Gabriel's um, solo albums, the covers were shot in and around Denmark Street as well. So it's all going on, isn't it? And the, the great thing about hypnosis is, is that kind of links us in a way to another sort of mid-70s story there. Um, I did a festival um, a few years ago, and a posh festival where there seems to be more artists than audience. Yeah, Posh house, and all the artists would sit around this huge dining table in the evening and, and eat together. It was very nice. And mm. uh, 
I was there and I had David Gilmore on one side of me and Glenn Matlock from really? the Sex Pistols on the other side of oh, me. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. And I seem to remember at the time thinking, didn't you wear a We Hate Pink Floyd <laughs> t-shirt once? <laughs> David Gilmore got his revenge uh, because they had a charity auction as well and uh, Glenn Matlock wrote the lyrics to Pretty Vacant mm. on the back of a napkin and it, I think it's in the auction for... Six hundred seventy quid, not bad. Mm. Right? Then David Gilmore wrote the uh, first four notes in musical format of I think it's "Wish You Were Here" or yeah. "Shine On Your Crazy Diamond." You know the yeah. down, 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 right? Yeah, two and a half grand. <laughs> <laughs> so he got his own back. And in terms of pretty vacant and hypnosis, that was the connection. Yeah, is that in the back of their building there was a shed. Right? Yeah, tell us about this shed, Pete. And so there was why this, it's connected with there, Glenn there, Matlock. So a lot of the um, Denmark Street buildings, especially on the south side, they had sheds in the background because they'd originally been sort of workshops they'd been mm. for people ma- manufacturing things mm. and it was this one at the back of number six and um various bands had worked there badfinger the, the sort of tragic badfinger had been the last band to have it badfinger had, had, had um, eventually split up after two of their members had, had had taken their own lives sort of unrelated um and so this space was vacant the landlord he advertised in enemy or melody maker uh, for this space, and Glenn Matlock claims, uh, Malcolm McLaren claims, John Lydon claims, they all claim they saw the advert and went down there, and it was at the back of number six, it was this shed. Um, Steve Jones was looking for a place to live, so he um, he ended up moving in as well. Um, Glenn Matlock lived there as well for a while, and it was a Stones rehearsal studio, and if you've seen uh, the Danny Boyle series, Sex, an awful lot of it takes place in their kind of creation of of, of of recreation of this i don't know if it was probably quite as kind of lively as as it's presented there so you get the sex whistles sort of walking through hypnosis's yep because they had to go through the shared office past space. these sort of long-haired flared yeah. wearing hippies who were uh, pink floyd's friends yep on the way to the back where they started um bashing out pretty vacant absolutely amazing and the um you know the the, the spunk demo demo or the bootleg a lot of that was recorded in denmark street spunk is the bootleg which then gets officially eventually yeah it was very convenient for glenn matlock because he was sort of uh at st martin's so he would be going there st martin's uh, art school to martin's art school um and it was it was a good place for them to kind of um kind of firm up really because they were pretty amateurish at the start and uh one of the interviewees from hypnosis was saying you know you could hear them getting better he said at first it was just a disaster but then suddenly i was like listening to it one day in the dark room and i thought you know what they're not bad they're not bad do you think mclaren also took a sort of uh, devilish delight in the fact that he was planting them right yes. in the middle of the sort of music establishment. Yeah. You know? I think Malcolm McLaren probably knowing his music is, and his management history was, mm. w- w- was was following Andrew Lou Goldham's, you know, using using Denmark Street as a Trojan horse. Mm. I don't know if he would have known that Hypnosis were there, but that would have really delighted him. Mm. And there was, you know, there was some kind of, you know, confrontations between the two groups. Um, but there was also collaboration. One of the um, hypnosis partners was Pete Christofferson, who was in Throbbing Gristle. Yeah. Um, and he took some photos of the Sex Pistols, the very first photos of the Sex Pistols, which um, Malcolm McLaren refused to release because they were quite, um, they, they weren't presenting the image that he was right. quite looking right. for at the time. Well, hypnosis is sort of, in a way, peter out, don't they, at the end of the 70s, because mm. there, there isn't really the market, you know, in the punk and post-punk era for that kind of, artwork anymore nobody, no nobody really wants it and stuff and this next phase of Denmark Street really is much more about the music uh, shops yeah. isn't it? the instrument shops and which is probably where still where most people's connection with it is but also I wanted to talk a little bit about the 12 bar yeah uh, Pete because uh, when I first came to London um, 
my my ex uh, took me there, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, tell us about what the twelve bar was because it was an amazing place wasn't it yeah i love the 12 bar so the 12 bar was uh, originally a, um, a blacksmith's forge from the 17th century that had somehow somehow survived and it and it's very much connected with the music shops because it was started um so you meant andy's guitars which is one of the sort of um sort of famous guitar shops on the street a lot of the people who worked at andy's were musicians and they and they wanted somewhere to play like a sort of social club at the time the forge was used as a um, as a storage place for food for thought. You know the old vegetarian cafe right. on Neil Street, right. and they moved out one day. And Andy was like, "Well, can we have it?" And they said, "Yeah, fine. Just you know, take over the lease." And so they started running it as a social club for the guitar techs and the employees of the various. And then from there. You know, the people would come and have their musician, if their instruments um, repaired, they would start wanting to play there. Kind of began like that. That was its kind of um, that was its kind of gestation. And then by the sort of um, mid '90s, it was a really great, really great venue. Charismatic, had this crazy balcony. I went there loads of times to see all kinds of sort of weird and quirky acts. Squeeze the balcony, wasn't it? So it's yeah. quite claustrophobic up there and because of the the height thing. Seem to remember that you couldn't see very well from the balcony, but also it was very low below Stage. the balcony. Yeah. So if you were at the back you couldn't see the band top of the band. Could no. you? So Do you know Jeffrey Lewis? He's mm. just he's a sort of American, sort of anti folk kind of there was an anti folk movement mm. in New York. And they would often play at the twelve bar and I interviewed him, Jeffrey Lewis, and he said it was like in an old fashioned TV when you couldn't quite tune it properly and the picture is like and you've got like someone's feet and <laughs> yeah, someone's so head. Up and down. <laughs> he said it was like totally, that. Yeah, yeah. But also because it was probably because it was run by Andy's and Co. Is that the great thing about it? Is it had a brilliant sound system. Did it? So, so even though the it was very small, yeah, it was a great place to see, particularly kind of more low key acts, right? Because they just had such a. It must have been a difficult space because yeah. it's so small and 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 you know all yeah. that brick. Yeah. So tell me about your own. Not long after I came to London, my ex, who was a who was knew all about music much more than I did, um, mentioned that this guy was going to be playing in. At the borderline, ah. and it was Tim Buckley's son. Mm. That was who it was. So mm. I used just to go a lot, tag along to these things. So, so Jeff Buckley's, I think it was his first show in London. Was at the was at the borderline second, yeah. or second? Yeah. Anyway, but after the show, loads of people, I think loads of people couldn't get into the show mm. uh, because he'd played a session on GLR as it was mm. that day, and I recall this because it was he got to the session late because mm. of London traffic. Mm. And the presenter, who I can't remember uh, who it was, but she introduced him as Tim Buckley's son, mm. right? Which he was livid about yeah. because I think at the time he was in very conflicted about that and he right. wanted to, despite calling himself Jeff Buckley and sounding a bit like Tim Buckley, yeah. he actually wanted to be his own person, yeah, didn't yeah, he? Yeah. So he was incredibly angry during right. the interview. Right. But then he played this song one of the songs which then went on to be on grace yeah. and it was mind-blowing yeah. right so as a consequence loads of people who never even knew who he was yeah. tried to get into the gig at the borderline and couldn't get in but when he'd finished i think the person from 12 bar happened to be at the gig and said to his manager does he want to come into the 12 bar i'm doing mm. a set and he did mm. he walked from the borderline to the 12 bar 
with a big trail of people behind yeah. him and did an impromptu set at the 12th bar. Yeah, I still worked for Uncut Magazine and my old editor there, mm. John Mulvey, was at NME at the time and he, he was... Um, he was at that show and, and he, he's talked about it. and he said that Buckley just didn't want to leave the stage and he That's was right. just playing almost every song he seemed mm. to know and he said it was a really a really special night I'd love to have been there I'm not sure about this but I, I always got the impression that um, somehow he was kind of recognised maybe here because of those gigs yeah. first yeah. and then it kind of blew up In fact, on that note a lot of American artists would play um, their kind of British showcase mm. um, before they were big in America either at the 12th or at the borderline those two venues Mm. and I was working at Time Out at that time late 90s Mm. early 2000s a little bit later but sort of similar era and we were always at those two venues borderline Mm. or 12 bar for showcases some really interesting performances and there's some good live albums as well there's a great Bert Jansch live album so into the modern era and of course the great timing in this book um, Pete and a poignant time maybe to come out because where are we at now with Denmark Street I mean bring us yeah. smack up to date let me quickly rush through the sort of 2000s so I think I think that's a sort of interesting period and in so development was slated for this area for quite a long time which meant that again you know it became quite a cheap place to have offices so you had people like acid jazz had an office there in the sort of sort of i think late 80s early 90s but then later on you had helter skelter open in their bookshop there you had one of the very first internet streaming um uh, companies located there they wanted to stream music on the internet fascinating interviews with the founders in 1994 well ahead of their time saying cds are over over overpriced people want free music and they can get it on the internet and um you know the labels were not interested and eventually they got shut out but they were right resonance fm used resonance to be there. FM, i was going to say did yeah. my first session there. yeah right so resonance fm was started there so there was a quite an interesting period i think um when people were waiting for the development to happen but then the development eventually got approval partly because the existence of Crossrail made it kind of feasible, economically feasible. And again, for people who don't know London, um, you know, this is absolutely smack in the centre of the city. Yeah. It's where Oxford Street yeah. crosses Tottenham Court Road and Charing Cross Road. Yeah. And it's, it's always this very weird junction, right, with the centre point, there's a sort, of, sick, there's a sort yeah. of 70s tower there. And... and I think the real tragedy for, for the Crossrail development in that area isn't so much what's happened on Denmark Street. It's what happened on the other side of the road where the Astoria and the Metro were knocked down, which mm. completely destroyed that live music tradition in that in that part of town. Mm. At the same time, you had the 12 bar had to close, according to developers anyway. It was, it was very old. They had to fix the foundations and they had to lift it, crane it, put in new foundations and then return it to its old space. While all this was going on, the borderline no longer became kind of, you know, feasible as a venue. So all these great venues that had been in that spot died. All the offices and all the people were turfed out of the north and south side of Denmark Street. First, they did the north side, then the south side. The development took longer than it should have done because of Brexit and because of COVID and because developments always do. So for a long time, everything was boarded up. You didn't know what was going on. A few shops were still going but it was pretty, pretty depressing. But the developers who I spoke to were always adamant that they wanted music to be part of the story. They basically built two huge buildings um, opposite the new Crossrail exit on Tottenham Court Road, which are kind of these like really weird walk-in billboards, which I, I secretly quite like, even though they're, they're extremely they cool. ugly. They are cool. <laughs> and kind of quite trippy and quite, yeah, yeah. quite, <laughs> quite unusual. The internet, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and and they want Denmark Street to be part of that. They want the instrument shops to be there. They've 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 reinstated a studio. They've reopened the twelve bar. They've built a new venue underneath one of the outer net buildings, um, about seven hundred floors down, called Here or something 
terrible. They're trying. There are some tragedies and that, you know, they to make it work, they built a fancy hotel and that means they've had to take out a load of the old interesting office spaces that were used by people like fixing guitars and, you know, like drum schools and things. They've all gone and they've been turned into a hotel. The upper floors are, are, are a bit more sort of tedious now. Mm. On the ground floor, you still have potential. They are being told that they have to have music-related businesses in there or at least offer their premises to music related businesses at first what music related means is very open mm. to interpretation That's at change, this point yeah. yeah yeah you've just got to keep an eye on it mm. there is a suspicion that in five or ten years when when you no know, one's looking when no one's looking mm. they may start to change things starbucks, there. starbucks will open and but at the moment, mm. it's it's not the same, but it never was the same. I think that's the kind of message of the book. It's that ne- is the it message never of the was book, the same. Right the way back to Lawrence Wright, you know, and, and even before that to the St. Giles Rockery, you know, the yeah. city changes, that part of London has changed, doesn't it? So, And it was always about commercialising music. You know, it's not about the, you know, the, the, the it, there are great stories, but essentially it's about people who want to make a lot of money out of, mm. out of writing a good song. And it, it still is for some people. And... And the reason that it works is because you and I, the audience, we want to hear music. Of course. And people want to play it. Yeah. You know, th- those things yeah. are kind of eternal. Yeah. Playing and the and the enjoyment of music is not quite as culturally important anymore, but it's still important. Yeah, and the, listen, the electric guitar is still a, a weapon against yeah. the culture, isn't it? And, you, and I think in terms of music publishing, you know, which is where it all started, it's quite interesting, isn't it? We live in an era now where, in some ways, it's, it's sort of gone full circle because of, say, streaming is that, the notion of the album, which yeah. came, again came in with really with the Beatles and, the, and Dylan and stuff, is that we've gone back to single songs being the thing, isn't it? With streaming, sort of, yeah, I and, guess that's and true. And also, and also, you know, teams of songwriters. Yeah, you know, I mean, that the, the, the Swedes are excellent at it, aren't they? These, <laughs> yeah, you know, with the, my my publishers, mute. You know, they're, they're always trying to hook me up with other other people, and they want to put you in a room with somebody who's mm. going to lay down the, the 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 basic of the track, and then someone's going to do the top line, someone's going to write the pre-chorus. Right. It's these, you know, teams. Of of people right, right, that are right. crafting these songs yeah. and then quite often the artist is involved in that but yeah. actually not necessarily that's so really interesting in yeah. some ways it's kind of all reversed you know? I mean you know another sort of side to that and something else that went on on Denmark Street a lot was was library music um, right. KPM were based there and a lot of library music it wasn't really recorded there but it was kind of edited there mastered yeah. there music isn't just mm the Beatles and the Rolling Stones it's it's yeah. used for incidentals it's jingles you know there are loads of jingles were, were, were written and, and, and done in there this is all music and it's all serving a purpose you said that the theme to News at 10 yes was one of the many famous theme tunes to emerge from the studio on Denmark Street yeah. on by KPM right Amazing, yeah. Isn't it? yeah 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 totally yeah so listen Pete congratulations on the book I'll put uh, links to it in the show notes and to your great London blog uh, The Great When uh, as well so Thanks very much for coming back to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you for having me, Stephen. That was very enjoyable. Thanks so much to Pete. As you can tell, his book is full of terrific tales, some of which we covered here, but many more in there between the pages. I'll put the links, as ever, in the show notes and to his wonderful blog on London that I mentioned then too. Now I bet some of our listeners, you guys, have got your own Denmark Street stories and memories, either as musicians or audiences or whatever. Write and let us know at bureauoflostculture at gmail.com. It's always great to hear from friends. Apart from my Jeff Buckley experience, I saw some great people at the 12 Bar. 
Galaxy 500 and Ed Harcourt, I can remember, and think there were several more, but to be honest with you, that time is all a bit of a blur. Now, London always changes. Cities always change. There's a necessity in that, but of course, there's a poignancy in it too. Pete mentioned that as well as the 12 bar, the Astoria, the Borderline, the Marquee, they've all gone. These legendary venues all lost. And I just read this week that many small other London music venues are also closing or threatened. It's the usual story of redevelopment and rent. But with them gone, how will people, young people, who want to form bands, perform and get going? London's always so proud of its musical legacy, fair enough. But surely it has the duty to provide the opportunity, the space for new dreamers to create a new legacy. And for the audiences, I mean gigs at even medium-sized venues are so expensive now. Anyway, never mind that. Thanks to you for listening. Let's keep listening. I will see you next time down the road, round the bend and over the hillsides for more tales from the other side, from the counterculture, from the underground. And here to finish is the Real Tuesday World with their song, I Love London. See ya.
Yeah, I still 